For episode 6 of Reading Games, a personal critical canon, we will be discussing a detailed analysis of the Resident Evil video game series by Capcom Entertainment, written by Dan Berlew and Thomas Wilde, and published on GameFAQs. Links to the article and other relevant materials are available in the episode description below. There are some content warnings as well. Check the very beginning of the episode description to see what is being discussed and when it occurs. I'll be honest, when I was putting together this list of 44 pieces of games criticism that meant a lot to me, I added this one mostly to make a point. And being even more honest, I didn't expect that I would ever need to articulate that point. It seemed self-evident, but then this podcast started and I've been hitting a bit of a wall. Because the problem was never that the point was self-evident. It's that the point I was making, that a plot analysis on game facts deserves to share the same space as the other essays I have discussed and will continue to, requires a whole bunch of context to actually make. That, coupled with the fact that this 100,000 word behemoth is more plot summary than analytical exercise, means that this episode is going to have a slightly different format. I did go ahead and reread the thing, pulling quotes that I thought might be useful to the points I wanted to make. But running through each game and constructing a complete argument out of this piece as a whole is simply not going to work. Because there isn't a thesis here. It's a collation of information about 10 games. It's a primer for those like me who aren't familiar with the series, or a refresher for those who are. The goal isn't to convince anyone of anything, other than that this is a reliable source of information regarding a famous series of video games where you can find what you want to know. I also don't want to overstate this particular entry into the plot analysis genre. At the time, I could have equally gone with Silent Pyramid's analysis of the Silent Hill series, or James Howell on Killer7. Like I said, I was making a point. Because all three of these examples share a lot in common. They're accessible works trying to bring clarity to games that fall outside of games' storytelling norms. They're amateur works, self-published on a platform that accepted, but was not meant, for them. They're examples of the curation of information in a pre-fanwiki culture, where instead of infinitely nested links, stories were told in long-form prose. And I don't mean that as a value judgment. I think it indicates an important historical shift. So, let's get into it. Would you like to hear a joke that I'll end up taking way too seriously? If not, I'm sorry, but this podcast has already kind of been that. So, uh, here it goes. The dictionary definition for lore says, quote, One. All the facts and traditions about a particular subject that have been accumulated over time, through education, or experience. 2. The backstory created around a fictional universe. 3. Obsolete. Workmanship. End quote. The jokes that that's how all bad high school essays start, right? Well, it turns out that we can't really talk about Resident Evil without talking about lore. And we definitely can't talk about game facts without talking about lore. And that definition happens to offer a good entry point, because all three aspects interplay with each other. And understanding lore is crucial in understanding why this Sparknotes-like recap is important to include on a list of great games criticism. The operative definition, I think, is usually number two. Lore is a backstory for fiction. 
It's the item descriptions or genealogies or ancient wars or behind the scenes movers and shakers that probably don't show up in the story itself. Or if they do, it's only in reference offhandedly. Based on my reading of Berlou and Wilde's plot analysis, in the Resident Evil series, you might include the progenitor virus, Edward Ashford, Oswald Spencer, and James Marcus in that definition. You might also include the way that the T-virus, the thing that makes people and plants and animals into zombies, came into being. And the G-virus, which is like the T-virus, but makes people mutate rapidly. Plus the Nemesis and Las Plagas parasites, as well as the TG virus from Resident Evil Dead Aim. Most importantly, it covers just about everything about the Umbrella Corporation, a megacorp who create and market bioorganic weapons, and who serve as the overarching series antagonist. All of these things are incredibly unimportant to understanding the story of any particular game, as far as I can tell. The games themselves tell stories of people caught in strange, puzzle-filled places, mostly mansions, trains, labs, and tunnels, with zombies trying to kill them. Usually they're trying to either escape or investigate, or both, and the story often revolves around two individuals helping each other to do so. All this lore does is fill in the gaps, creating a sense of cohesion, which brings us back to the first definition. If lore is a backstory for a fictional universe, it's generally intended to simulate the facts and traditions that have been accumulated over time through education or experience. It's there to lend verisimilitude at the aesthetic level, continuity at the franchise level, and exploitable material at the level of production. Because having the sense that these things are living, full of genuine facts and developed traditions, makes them more appealing. Again, referencing the fact, we might think of this in terms of escalation. In the first game, our characters are part of STARS, the Special Tactics and Rescue Service of the Raccoon City Police Department. As the games go on, we learn of the UBCS, or the Umbrella Biohazard Countermeasure Service, Umbrella's own pseudo-STARS parallel who work to hide the company's wrongdoings. In Resident Evil Dead Aim, one of the main characters works specifically for, quote, an anti-Umbrella unit within the United States Strategic Command. End quote. This escalation gives the sense that we are learning and experiencing these bits of information, and that they have facts and traditions behind them. They also amount to nothing in terms of the actual story. If this all sounds dismissive, I assure you it isn't. Or, not entirely, at least. Lore isn't necessarily a bad thing. Stories should feel like they have the weight of history behind them, because they do. And that doesn't need to be incorporated directly into how the characters react to the threat of a zombie every time. There is a place for this kind of information, but there's also a tendency to rely on it, and it has effects beyond its aesthetic value, which is why I included the third, obsolete definition, workmanship. Lore is craft. It's a backstory for a fictional world that provides it a sense of fact and tradition, and it's one that you look at the same way you would a well-carved table, or a piece of inventive code. It treads a fine line between the weight of history and the pleasant diversion of a job well done. Lore is reading things like a plot analysis fact, or... At least, it used to be. I mentioned earlier that these facts are something of an artifact of a pre-fan-wiki culture, and I do believe there has been a shift. Berlou began this in 1998. He ended up abandoning it because he got a job as a strategy guide author based on some of his other work. Wilde picked it up in 2000, and updated it through the beginning of 2006. This eight-year span mirrors almost perfectly the time from the first utterance of Web 2.0 to the point at which it became the dominant ideology of web development. For those who don't know, a very short summary of Web 2.0 is that it was a focused effort on the part of corporations to make the internet more user-friendly. Things like blogging, podcasting, RSS feeds, and social networks were its hallmarks. The previous internet wasn't free, but it was characterized by sites handwritten in HTML, 
forums, and pseudonymous chat rooms. 2.0 was a centralization effort, making things easier to access for ordinary people and easier to control for major corporations. You can find a good discussion of the artistic implications of that shift in the Beyond the Filter podcast, uh, the episode with Natalie Lawhead specifically, which is linked in the description. One hallmark of Web 2.0 that I left out was wikis. Wikipedia, notably, was founded in 2001, but didn't break into the top 10 U.S. websites until 07. Only a year before, it reached a peak of having 1,800 articles added daily. Wikia, the social network platform for wikis, debuted in 2004, but had its breakthrough in 2007, when it hit more than 3,000 wikis in 50 different languages. The implications of this shift were huge. Most folks have had the experience of exploring a wiki far past the point of interest. You look up something out of curiosity and realize hours later that you're in a hole and you have no idea how you ended up in it. To refer back to the first episode of this podcast, they can be engines of dissociation. They're games. Structurally, they rely on the presentation of objective information in a dry, basic format that is shot through with links. Aesthetically, they present plot summaries that have tantalizing links to endless other plot summaries that have endless links to etc. If we say that 2007 marks the beginning of Web 2.0, that doesn't necessarily mean that's why this particular fact stopped updating. There are plenty of interlocking concerns. CNET had bought GameFAQs in 2003, which surely made producing content for them for free less appealing. A year later, in 2008, CNET itself was bought by CBS, which is currently the fifth largest entertainment company in the world. That same year contains the housing market crash that sparks the Great Recession. Probably the reason this document stopped updating in 2006 is that Wilde just got a job, same as Burlew had years prior. Based on social media, he appears to be a games critic still. I certainly hope he made it in early enough to have avoided the gig economy that has buoyed neoliberalism through the last decade. Either way, it ends at a point when the wheel is rapidly turning. These economic and political trends don't simply play out in a vacuum. They influence the way that things are received. Wikification, brought about by the power grab of Web 2.0, and its place in the massive upwards redistribution of wealth that accelerates after the market crash, changes the way we read games. And that brings us back to lore. Lore doesn't begin in 2006. The first and third of those definitions I read earlier are sourced back to the late 16th century publication of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, an Arthurian epic poem that earned its author a pension from Queen Elizabeth I. But it does crystallize at that point as perhaps the primary way of reading games. User-generated content and hyperlink-heavy forms of analysis combine with the slow death of medium-sized games. What we're left with is a games landscape that prioritizes one of two things. On one end are independent games by a small handful of privileged creators. Most of these end up prioritizing one or two mechanical innovations and are filled in with make-do storytelling around the edges, or the exact inverse. The other end is full of massive tentpole releases that stuff themselves full of everything possible in order to justify their price points to a ravenous consumer base that has actively excluded a non-male, non-gamer-identified audience. From that point until now, all small games have to choose between being missed or doom, and all big games have to be both missed and doom at once. At its best, Lore, this workmanlike backstory that simulates facts and traditions, doesn't just give a story a sense of weight. It pushes you to consider important realities. Take, for example, an offhand point by Wilde in his section on Resident Evil Code Veronica. Quote, By the time RE begins in 1998, Umbrella's the kind of inescapable megacorporation that drives most cyberpunk plots. End quote. He says this to introduce a condensed history of the Ashford family, a massive lore mess in the games starting with Code Veronica. It's actually a fairly straightforward comparison. 
The Ashfords are basically the Tessier Ashpools from Neuromancer, down to Alexia Ashford and Three Jane, both being clones who were kept frozen for a long time. More abstractly, though, Cyberpunk's megacorporations were initially modeled after Zaibatsu, a sort of nested corporate structure prominent in the Japanese empire that allowed for strict vertical control of market segments. In Neuromancer especially, they were meant to act as replacements for the state, which had largely disappeared in a libertarian wet dream. Resident Evil, on the other hand, has no such fantasy. You play as cops, one of the armed wings of the state, in nearly every entry. That's the escalation I mentioned before. In the time from Resident Evil 1 to Resident Evil Dead Aim, you go from playing Special Cops to Capital SF Special Forces. This is the kind of lore that helps reveal underlying ideological shifts. Neuromancer comes out in 1984, in the dead center of the decade of Thatcher and Reagan, when neoliberalism was grabbing and growing its foothold in the imperial center. A decade and a half later, statements like, there is no such thing as society, have done their work and been discarded. Big government, meaning social programs, has been defeated, and getting rid of the armed wings of the state would be ludicrous. The point, though, is that the cyberpunk connection isn't wrong, but it's mostly instructive in its differences. Where the Tessier Ashpools were the creators of AI, Umbrella is primarily an arms and pharmaceuticals company, appropriate to the escalations of the Cold War in the intervening years, and the way that corporate consolidation around drugs became a political economic trend. Some examples from Wilde's recaps, from Code Veronica, quote, the most interesting revelation is the fact that there is a great deal of competition in the field of T-virus research. Umbrella isn't the only company in the world that deals in monsters. End quote. From the Resident Evil Dead Aim recap, quote, Umbrella markets its bioweapons. Before Dead Aim, this was an assumption. Now we know for sure. End quote. And especially from the Resident Evil Outbreak file number two recap, quote, through a shell corporation, Drugs Incorporated, Umbrella provided the hospital with untested drugs as a way of avoiding costly and potentially unsuccessful clinical trials. Some, if not all, of these drugs were based on the T-virus, to judge by the patient records. At least one patient was given a fast-acting cancer cure that killed him shortly thereafter. End quote. These bits of information all of which, again, have basically no bearing on the actual story of any game, reveal a few things. Umbrella isn't a monopoly and it actually participates in world markets. Given that all they really seem to do is turn people into zombies using drugs, and not in the reactionary liberal sense of antidepressants making you numb, this seems like a deliberate choice. It forces the player, or reader, to imagine who would be in that market. Who would want to buy ways to annihilate populations, turning them into unruly non-subjects? The third quote goes further, indicating that they aren't just making money. They're actively subverting regulations, which, again, points back to there being a fairly robust state apparatus missing from most early cyberpunk fiction. Returning to the state for a moment, I'll have to do some recapping of the recap, rather than direct quoting. Resident Evil 2 seems to best set up the dichotomy of Umbrella. On the one hand, much of the game takes place in a police station. I imagine some of the topics, particularly the sexual abuse that is woven through the villain's story, are handled poorly. But the way the game is set up points to a few things. First, the station is basically a puzzle box. This is primarily a gameplay concern, but it metaphorizes the way state bureaucracy obfuscates state violence. Second, I'll do what I think must be the most po charitable possible reading of the abuse. The state's monopoly on violence, enacted through its armed protectors of property, provides structure for abuse. This isn't to say things like CSA didn't or couldn't exist outside of capitalism, only that the form it takes in the game, a serial abuser emboldened by his position as a police chief, is actively abetted by the structures of the state. The other main location, uh, other than a train, which is, as we all know, a beautiful 
perfect symbol of public infrastructure that saves the day, uh, is a laboratory connected to Umbrella. It's where Resident Evil being full of buildings that self-destruct becomes a proper trope. And that is interesting, because a laboratory with a self-destruct mechanism can only mean one thing. It's in the private sector. Under what other circumstances would secrecy and opacity be such overwhelming imperatives that the engineers would rather it be rigged to explode than that their intellectual property be revealed to the outside world? All of that stuff I just said is, in my estimation, an example of how lore can shine. It creates conversation, putting a work of art into the context of art across time, and gives us tools by which we can talk about the world as it is. It invites parallels to be made that lead to critical thought about the material causes of its creation, which draws back into the world that it was ostensibly meant to provide escape from. It links neurons, offering new ways of thinking. Sometimes, those links then cause us to make derivative works, or just have conversations. In doing so, it links people, often into communities of taste, but at its best, into potential organizations of solidarity and action. Speaking of communities of taste, though, one more quick diversion before we try to bring this thing to a close. One of the aspects of this plot analysis fact that intrigues me most, and has for a long time, are the asides. The ways that the authors contextualize information according to taste, or argue for the inclusion of certain aspect over others. One very basic example from the recap of Resident Evil 3. Quote, RE3 has more replay value than any other RE game to date, with three endings and plenty of secrets to unlock, as well as the incredibly fun, read, addictive, and frustrating Mercenaries minigame. End quote. By the apparent goals of this document, that bit of information is wildly unnecessary. This isn't a product review. It has nothing to do with the plot, which is of utmost importance if you take into account the entirety of Wilde's analysis of Resident Evil Gun Survivor 2, which goes, quote, Also known as Resident Evil Fire Zone, this Namco-Capcom collaboration is a retelling of sorts of Code Veronica. It stars Claire, Steve, and a liberal helping of every monster in the RE series. It's also a dream that Claire's having as she's lying unconscious in the crashed plane in Antarctica. As such, it has no bearing on the plot. End quote. And end recap. Perhaps a more indicative example is how Burlu basically begins and ends the recap of Resident Evil 2. From the beginning, quote, for the purpose of brevity, this synopsis will follow the plot as it occurs in the Claire A and Leon B combination, which is by far the most structurally sound of the two scenario combinations, end quote. And then near the end, quote, Perhaps the reason why the previous plot summary focused on Claire A, Leon B are now clear. The focus scenario is much richer in plot and explanations. There is not as great a leap of faith required to believe that Ada still lives, end quote. That second bit comes at the end of a summary of the differences between the Claire A. Leon B. and the Leon A. Claire B. plots, one of which goes, quote, Sherry is never impregnated with a G-type embryo, so Claire doesn't have to create a G-virus antidote. Thus, no mention of an antidote is heard, end quote. In other words, Berlou preferred the version of the plot which featured incest to the point of viral impregnation. This is not meant to impugn his character, only to say that the relative importance of Ada's plausible survival overrides other possible concerns. It's a strange thing, and one that would have been sanded out of the fan wiki model. It's time, I think, to try to wrap this whole mess up. So let's start by quickly going over what we've covered. We started with lore. That's important because a plot analysis fact wouldn't make much sense without it. Then, we had to take into consideration how this article is an artifact of its time, given the differences between when this was written and the current landscape of the web. Part of which is that wiki culture has supplanted these kinds of recaps. 
At the same time as that is happening, games are losing their economic middle, sometimes referred to as B-games. It didn't happen here, but you might link that to neoliberal policy that organizes society in order to redistribute wealth to the most wealthy, meaning everything becomes missed, doom, or missed doom. With all of this context in mind, we tap into the games themselves. A comment from Burlew about Resident Evil 2 takes us down a comparative reading of that game's lore with Neuromancer, which brings us back to ideological shifts in neoliberalism from the mid-80s to the late 90s and early aughts. The comparison reveals a couple things. A shift from informatics to pharmaceuticals and weapons development, and a different sense of how megacorporations interact with the state. This then takes us down to some of the content of one of the games, at least as represented by the authors of this document, especially the ways that the more gameplay-oriented decisions can support thematic resonances, and how the choices that get made in the construction of this document matter. I think it's important to say, here, that I imagine it's entirely possible that my reading of Resident Evil 2, and the game series in general, might very well not stand up if I played them myself. Which brings us back to where I started. The original idea, with including this fact on the list I made, was to prove a point. One I thought self-evident, but eventually realized was anything but. The point was that games criticism is a broad thing. Anyone interested in it shouldn't confine themselves to academic disputes, displays of social capital, or the many other possible pitfalls. There's a strange history to this field, and I wanted to acknowledge it. I also wanted to point to the fact that games criticism isn't beholden to the products it begins with. This podcast episode has nothing to do with the Resident Evil game. It has everything to do with a particular plot analysis written by particular people over a period of time. It's not a derivative of a derivative, except in the most technical sense. Berlou and Wilde's work stands alone, as far as I'm concerned, even and especially because of the problems I have with it. Just like you don't need to see Paul Klee's Angelus Novus to appreciate the importance of Walter Benjamin's ninth thesis in his Theses on the Philosophy of History, games criticism can draw from the world to create new ways of organizing our thoughts, and hopefully ourselves. This has been a discussion of a detailed analysis of the Resident Evil video game series by Capcom Entertainment, written by Dan Berlew and Thomas Wilde. Next time on Reading Games, a personal critical canon, we have a review of Peter Jackson's King Kong by Zelani Stewart, an essay about genealogies and first-person bodies. I'd also like to thank Zanzan Zawavea for our intro and outro music, which comes from the song Yarn Ball. You can find out more and support Zan at patreon.com ZZZV, or on Twitter, at Z-A-A-N-A-A-N-A-A. I've been your host, B, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.